0: Meet the author at the National Archives online. In this talk, Rebecca Gowers discusses her book, The Scoundrel Harry Larkins. The talk was recorded in November 2020. to meet the authors at the National Archives Online. This evening, I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Rebecca Gowers, um, who's going to talk to us about her book, Scoundrel Harry Larkins, um, which is a fabulous mixture of social and family history and um, also just a cracking good read. Catherine Howells, our um, visual collections researcher, will be talking to Rebecca, and um, talking a little bit about um, some of the photos that we have from Edward Maybridge in our collection here. So I'll just pass across to Catherine to kick off. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, good evening everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for another Meet the Author event. Yes, as uh, Sally said, I'm Catherine Howells and I'm the visual collections researcher at the National Archives and tonight I'm going to be chatting to Rebecca Gowers. So we're going to be talking about her Brilliant new book, which I really enjoyed The Scoundrel Harry Larkins and His Pitiless Killing by the photographer Edward Mybridge. So, to start, a very warm welcome to Rebecca. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Great. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to start by saying that I found your book to be absolutely fascinating and really engaging. Story. I felt genuinely on the edge of my seat while following the twists and turns of Harry Larkins' life, a life which was very exciting, but really tragically short, and obviously there are very sad bits in this book as well. It's a biography, it's following Harry Larkin's One Man, but it also felt to me like a bit of a mystery story as you kind of show how you gradually uncover his story through your research. So my first question is really around how you came to this story in the first place. I understand you have a direct family link to Harry Larkin's, so can you tell us how you began your journey in writing this book?
0: Yes, I have to warn you that you've kicked off with a knotty sort of question, but I'll, I'll try to be as concise as possible. But I grew up knowing that my great-great-great-grandmother, I know one has a lot of them, but one of them, had written a letter which I saw as a child, wrote it in 1857 from the entrenchments at Cornpore during the Cornpore Massacre in what was then referred to as the Indian Mutiny and in it she said uh, I'm about to be killed any you know any day now and also her husband and her three smallest children which did indeed happen but in the letter she said farewell to four children who were in England and friends and family Um, so it's a very painful letter and my grandmother had shown it to me when I was little and one day I just wondered what had happened to it. My grandmother died some years ago and I didn't know where it was. So I was looking about online and so my great-great-great-grandmother was called Emma Larkins, spelt with an I, and the four children who'd lived, three were daughters and the son was called Harry or Henry or Harry. When I started looking for the letter, any trace of it online I found it had indeed been written about in books quite a lot but there was also this stray suggestion that bizarrely that the person who'd been murdered by the photographer Edward Mybridge, whose name had been Harry Larkin spelt with a Y nobody knew quite who this guy was they couldn't trace him but one of the speculations out there was maybe he was the same as the Henry Larkins with an I from that letter which promulgated in various books. So people he was 10 years younger than they wanted him to be. But just maybe that was him. So I thought, well, that's really bizarre. So I got in touch with one of the people who was putting that theory forward. And I said, What facts do you have about the Harry Larkins with a Y, the murder victim? What, what can you tell me about him? That's a hard fact. And he said, Well, nobody's really been able to trace his life back more than two years because he was going under an assumed name, it was that was the guess, but he gave me one or two facts or purported facts, one of which of no particular interest was that Harry Larkins with a Y had had a brother in law, whose surname was Cutler. So I, I just checked out within family records and so on, what were the names of the husbands of the sisters of the Harry Larkins in my family and Lo and behold, staggeringly, one of them had married a man called Cutler. So then I thought, you know, wow, bingo, I've got it. I had these two extraordinary stories, the, the Cornpore massacre, this letter that had reached England and all the sort of tragedy of that. And then this little boy whose family had been half wiped out ended up getting murdered himself so as you can see that that was quite a narrative overload and that that's what really got me going.
1: Yeah I I can imagine finding a story like that must be incredible I mean, yeah you can't really you certainly can't leave that story alone can you You find something like that and so I suppose Harry had this link to India but he was he was kind of left um, in England quite in when he was quite young so didn't have a direct link but he had family out there and had his family killed out there and then he did eventually go to India to serve in the Bengal army so tell us more about his his link to India then I mean how do you think that the experience of the death of his family um, how do you think that affected him and then why do you think he he did go to India to serve
0: well he he was actually born in India but his father who was in the um, Indian army then of the East India Company was sick most of his life and went home to England on medical certificate as it was called when Harry was two and when Harry's parents went back to India they left Harry and his oldest sister older sister who was a year older than him behind in London so Harry never saw his parents again from the age of two so he was left there were a lot of Larkins's in London and they were, they were big in the East India Company. They ran ships for the East India Company. So he had plenty of relations to keep an eye on him and really bring him up. But the records on him are quite thin and it seems as though his own parents didn't have very much money. So it seems as though he got dumped, I, I'm guessing, into cheap little schools. And he certainly ended up in Brussels in a school on the continent which was a cheaper way to educate your children. They were generally run by clergymen. Dickens sent three of his sons to a school in Boulogne in the same way. And of course, Emily, sorry, Charlotte Bronte writes about schools in Brussels in Villette and in her novel, The Professor. So, so he Harry was certainly in Brussels at the age of about 11 or 12. But he then came back, the aunt who took on bringing him up, put him into a school in Wimbledon that was specially designed to prepare boys to go into the army. And I think the Larkins family decided that they wanted to get him a commission somehow in the East India Company army, in a way to get rid of him or to, to set him up for life. So after, after his family had been slaughtered, which happened when he was 13, um, he was crammed to get into the, the Indian army. And he got packed off there, aged 16. So from our point of view, he was a child, and really weirdly, you know, he was joining an army that had risen up in rebellion and killed five members of his family. Well, actually, also cousins and extended family who were also in India, and all that sort of extraordinary empire-building idea that a you know young. English lad could go and command men because he was from the right class, and so on. Um, so, what he thought of that, I can't imagine in, in the inner recesses of his soul. But the challenge was to enter into really the company of men as a sort of dashing military figure.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And, but it was in his while he was in India that that maybe his his reputation started to develop and. So in terms of money, he, he started dishonest practices, is that right, fair enough to say, um, while he was out in India. That was the beginning of that. And was that, do you think that was due to the difficulty of, of how much they were paid you know, in the army in India and, and whether they could support themselves out there?
0: That was, it was an absolutely known phenomenon that it was incredibly hard to get by on your pay. And for example, Dickens sent one of his sons out similarly who, who got into terrible debt. At the same time, Harry got into absolutely astronomical debt. I mean, really, um, you know, uh, uh, outrageous. So he, he lived at large. He wasn't just sort of stepping over the line a little bit because it was hard not. But there's a, there's a sort of critical detail, I think, that in his mother's last letter home, which was smuggled out of the entrenchments by a servant and took six months to reach England. So they already knew that she was dead when it arrived she put this terrible warning into Harry saying um, you must never please your own desires and if you think about effectively she said if you think about having any fun remember your little brothers and sisters who or little sisters and brothers sorry who who uh, will be killed um, and behave yourself so he is obviously a bit of a rebellious child already and he seems to have taken this stricture not in the spirit in which it was intended and decided to have as much fun in life as he possibly could and you know he was terrible with money and it's indulgent to say that it, it's not a disease I don't think uh, he, he clearly didn't wish to be good with money but he certainly was awful with money but he was also terrific fun I mean people loved him and he was very generous with the, the funds that he had access to however he got them
1: yeah i, I mean i was just going to move on to his time in france um in paris where that that kind of side of his personality seemed to come through uh, strongly and it's just interesting that, he, that obviously he got he he got caught up in fraud again in paris quite severely and ended up on trial for it but the, the things that he was doing were, were all around buying gifts for people and kind of just building up a person a sort of cult of personality. It wasn't for any. It, it didn't always seem that he was it was he was trying to achieve something in terms of his circle in terms of buying gifts for for um, you know opera singers and things like that. So it's an interesting personality that he had out there and so I, he had this negative reputation yes but he was also popular with very with many people out in paris so how do you make sense of those two sides of his personality particularly in paris
0: well yes what you it's important what you say that the the fraud wasn't for permanent gain because he was constantly without funds but he so so his the crimes for which he was put on trial were uh, misappropriating, to put it politely, diamonds from a jeweller that he then gave to a, a very wild sort of courtesan and to a very famous singer at the time, Hortense Schneider, who was the great star of Offenbach's opera Booth. So he, he was sent out of India for, for being badly behaved and went to London to reunite with his family. And I think his aunt funded him to some extent. So he made wild friends in the gentlemen's clubs of London who did have money and they just swept him up in their fun. And mostly they paid for him. And when when he was put on trial in Paris, they paid all his debts. They they paid his way out of it really um, and paid for incredibly expensive lawyers to argue the case because he wasn't being tried for debt, he was being tried for fraud, which is a much more serious crime. But whenever he got into trouble, there, were, there was a, a sort of queue of people who wanted to help him, it seems, and not just family members either. I mean, one of the difficulties of writing this book is that he clearly had masses of charisma, and that's not something, you know, it, it's merely reported. You can deduce the fact, but it's not that, you know, you need to meet someone maybe to feel the full force of it. But one can say with certainty that, that he, he was a hugely charismatic character.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's just just, if you just wish that you could have some more evidence, uh, you know, being able to meet him, being able to, you know, I suppose a lot of the records that you, you have to sort of draw from are often, you know, not that direct. So it's kind of you have to have to draw conclusions from the records you have, don't you?
0: Yes, that's true. And, and the records, I mean, the, you know, trial transcripts and newspaper reports obviously put him in a rather bad light. Um, so sometimes you have to go about things in a slightly funny way to try and understand what was really going on. Another, another way to judge him is by the people who did take him to court. And uh, although it's immoral to trample on small traders and try and deceive them and so on, there are some very shady practices by which small traders would ensnare people that they thought had not necessarily that much money, but the ability to generate it to get out of trouble. So so his court cases aren't aren't absolutely clear cut when you really take the lid off them. And some of the people who later got very cross with him, you know, once I dug into other sorts of evidence about wills and so on, turned out to be extraordinarily complicated not necessarily terribly pleasant themselves so it seemed as though certain inadequate people men I should say sort of fell in love with him and then when the spell was broken they really hated him <laughs> um, and uh, so so he had this huge sudden backwash of of dismay and dislike from one or two people in his life.
1: Yeah so I suppose moving on to that, that <laughs> probably the best example of that was when he went to America and then got involved with Arthur Neal, um, who was, was he a millionaire or he had, he had lots of money, but didn't know what, what to do with it basically. And eventually got in trouble again there. But, but just turning back to when he went to the USA, do you think that was, was he trying to escape um, his situation in France and in London?
0: Yes, I, I think absolutely. He, he, um... He had um, fought in the Franco-Prussian War. So he'd got into terrible trouble in Paris, been imprisoned before his trial, got away with it, went to London, was then had up for passing a bad check, got away with that somehow. Then the Franco-Prussian War broke out. So it's an important episode in his life that he fought really valiantly and won the Légion d'Honneur for valour because of, and was wounded twice and, and, you know, Uh, acted as a spy did incredibly dangerous things but when he limped back literally to London after that the aunt who held the purse strings in his family um, wasn't mollified I think he'd gone off thinking death or glory but when he came back the glory wasn't enough so I'm guessing she just cut him off and said I'm not I'm not funding you anymore and he decided to reinvent himself by going to America, that's my guess. I should say he had already changed his name at this point. I think in order to get into the French military, he didn't want that diamond theft hanging around his neck, so he put the Y into his name already before he got to America.
1: It's amazing how simple it seemed to be able to change your name in that way and just sort of move on from your past, although, I mean, I suppose it did catch up with him in a way, but yeah, so I mean, as, as is probably obvious even from our chat now, there's this, he had a very full life for somebody yes. who you know, <laughs> died fairly young um, and there's so many episodes that are part of his life. It's almost amazing that he, he fit in as much as he did. So I think turning to his time in America now, we should probably turn to Edward Mybridge and just talk a little bit about him. So yeah, Harry became entangled with, with him by falling in love with his wife which led to eventually to his murder. But can you tell us a little bit about what Mybridge was doing at this time um, and how they, how they got connected?
0: Uh, well, Mybridge had gone out to California in the 1850s and then for reasons that aren't quite clear, went back to England, had a terrible stagecoach accident on the way back, which uh, apparently gave him some form of brain damage, impossible to say quite what in retrospect uh, he stayed in London for a while and then he went back to America where he decided to set up as a photographer. So he had run a bookshop before then, but a couple of his friends were doing incredibly well as photographers and were really celebrated for their amazing pictures of Yosemite and landscape pictures. And Mybridge's previous efforts as a bookseller hadn't paid off particularly well, so he he decided to go back as a photographer and was, he went to Yosemite uh, on a first trip and got amazing photographs and was lauded for them in just the way he'd hoped he would be. So he was setting himself up as a landscape photographer. And at the same time, um, he was in his early 40s by now, but a, a very young woman working in the photography gallery where he was currently connected, to which he was currently connected, a young woman who was a photographic retoucher caught his eye, and she was actually at the time separated from a husband to whom she had married at 16. Disastrous, brief marriage. And it's not, again, the records aren't quite clear, people's uh, accounts differ, but she got out of that marriage. She divorced that first husband, possibly with Mybridge's help and then his account was that he rescued her by marrying her and her later account was that he bullied her into marrying him and said that he would um, see that she lost her job if she didn't marry him. So the two of them were sort of staggering on like this as a married couple in these two jobs when Harry blew into town, shall we say.
1: Yeah, and just to, um, if we could show the image of um... One of mybridge's photographs now because um, what one particular maybe unexpected kind of connection between this story and the National Archives is that we hold a very large collection of um, Edward Meyerbridge's photographs specifically his motion photographs so he got had an interest in capturing motion and, and took a huge range of photographs of different of animals and people in motion so we have a, a huge collection this is just one example of it and we'll we will come to another one as well um, a bit later. So just to say they are in our copyright collection, which means that Mybridge registered them for copyright protection. So we've ended up with it, with this collection. Strangely, just the motion ones really, there's obviously a huge range of photographs. He was very prolific and in your, in your book, there's lots of photographs that he took of, of various buildings and things that are relevant to the story, but yeah, we do hold a huge collection. You can see them on our image library as well if anyone's interested. So then turning to Harry's experience here, the love story between him and Mybridge's wife Flora is, is just really compelling and, and this is the bit where, where I really, really think it's um, the kind of thing where I don't want to give away all the, all the details of it because it's the sort of thing that you know what's going to happen because you know the, how, how this story ends but you don't know how it's going to happen, you don't know how everyone is going to respond but he Mybridge became aware of the affair and shot Harry, and then went to trial for it. Can you tell us about the trial, about Mybridge as a person, and what we can learn about this trial? Because it's just such an interesting uh, trial story. It's so many twists and turns to it.
0: Yes, uh, I, I'm. I'm going to interject here that um, people who've written about this so far. Have always come at it from the perspective that they're interested in Mybridge and they want to write about him and there can creep into accounts therefore uh, one might say a slight bias in his favour so when I looked at the trial because I was writing you know I I, I'm in I hope I'm impartial but I was giving Harry a chance it didn't come across to me in the way that it was generally reported And one of the problems is that the press was very split um, in San Francisco at the time and people tend to read the reports in newspapers that were favourable to Mybridge and not the ones that weren't but he was uh, he had maybe because of his accident he'd become a very cold fish strange people said he had violent mood swings and was very unreasonable and peculiar and hard to anticipate what he was going to do next and in the trial I mean, it's it's an absolutely sort of shocking, it's shocking to read the trial now. His his defence, they defended him on two completely contradictory grounds. One was the um, uh, legitimate plea of insanity, that he'd been driven to it in a moment of insanity, which, if you trace the story through as I try to, doesn't stand up at all, really. And then their other argument, which wasn't legitimate, that but which was popular at the time, was what was called justified homicide, killing, you know, your, someone sleeps with your wife, you're, you have a right to kill them, the Bible says so, whatever. But if if it was justified, you didn't have to be insane to do it. So these two, these two things didn't really um, square up. But the judge said to the jury on on the one, the one um, verdict you can't arrive at, well, they, they couldn't arrive at justified homicide, that wasn't a legitimate verdict, but they also couldn't arrive at saying that he was not guilty because uh, there'd been witnesses, he didn't pretend he hadn't done it. So it it was quite an interesting problem for the jury. If they didn't think he was insane, but they felt favourable towards him, what were they going to do about it? I don't know whether you want me to give away exactly what happened, but I found it really fascinating, untangling, how the arguments went. But one other thing I should say about the press is again people who my bridge aficionados who write about this say that the press was entirely happy with the outcome, but that's absolutely not true. If you if you read across the press, perhaps I'm giving away the outcome. People were, were
1: <laughs> I think it's okay to give a, give away
0: the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got off. The, yeah. the the jury came up with an illegitimate verdict of not guilty. They didn't do the fig leaf of insanity, they just said. We're going to say he's not guilty, even though we know that he was. But the press that was um, shocked by this, they said the jury had perjured themselves because they didn't believe, you know, they couldn't believe that he hadn't done it because he had done it and it wasn't self defense. And, you know, but there were really interesting responses, including by feminist writers. And and in fact, the whole strand of feminism in San Francisco at that time and and the feminism of Mybridge's wife. Um, and how Harry himself adopted feminist arguments that seem incredibly modern, actually. That's that's another really uh, uh, interesting element of the story that I, I hadn't anticipated at all when I started working on it.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that it's, it seems like quite a landmark case in a way. I mean, I, I don't know whether it set precedent in, in these kind of legal um, situations, but it sounds like it, it could have done in the, the they allowed the jury to make that verdict
0: if that that wasn't they that wasn't setting a precedent um that the the sort of backwards juries were known for doing this so it was right before right from before it started there was a fear that the jury would let him off but it was a very famous example of them doing that and you know newspapers afterwards said this this puts California in a terrible light that we're prepared to um, let people off like this and the, and some argue that the judge shouldn't have allowed that verdict to stand and so on so it was it was very contentious and much discussed at the time.
1: And very briefly I don't know if you've already touched on this a little bit but you know it seems like the press and newspapers had a huge impact um, on Harry's life both in the sense that they even before even before when he first went to the USA he was written about unfavourably in, in, in certain <laughs> newspapers and then they this kind of set his reputation and made it very difficult for him to then move on from that. So his life is kind of defined by press, um, by newspapers, which you've already said, but also he was a journalist so a lot of your, your the records that you rely on are his writing from his own journalism.
0: Yes, well amazingly he got a job um, writing for the San Francisco Evening Post, which was edited by an extraordinary, the extraordinary Henry George, which um, people may have heard of him, um, who was a reforming character. And interestingly, the horse photographs that you showed were commissioned by Leyland Stanford, whom we know the name from Stanford University now in this country, at least, who was a railway baron and a capitalist um, who wanted photographs of his own horse, Occident, initially to prove that a galloping horse had all four feet off the ground at once, which you can't see with a naked eye. So Stanford um, asked Mybridge to conduct that experiment to speed up shutter speeds and use tripwires and so on. So Stanford was this great capitalist. Harry Larkins was writing for Henry George, who detested Stanford and was was himself condemned as a socialist so there was a big political divide. Harry was on the side of the bohemians and the socialists in this equation and he was asked by Henry George to write both theatre criticism which embraces if you read everything he wrote quite a lot of moral judgments um, including these kind of feminist asides that he makes but also he wrote kind of jolly columns of anecdotes and so on which is where you do get actually a glimpse of that charisma because he was you know full of funny stories and he put, put some of them down on the page and you suddenly hear him writing about the prison in Paris or whatever he doesn't say I, I was incarcerated in it myself but suddenly it was electrifying to discover him re- referring back to earlier bits of his life his biography that I knew he'd actually gone through
1: yeah that's that's he Sounds. Like, I mean, it seems like he's a wonderful writer, and it, it just makes the story even sadder in a way, doesn't it? That you just think, well, the potential, um, what he could have achieved um, if he if he hadn't died so young, um, in terms of his writing, particularly.
0: I um, I I, yeah. I definitely felt, you know, he was shot at the age of thirty, and he was uh, for the last year of his life, trying to redeem himself. I really does seem like that, and so you, you can't say he would have been. A writer of huge note, but he—he he was buckling down. He was writing very uh, entertainingly, and you—you you can speculate that he might have carved out a life as a, you know, a journalist, or writer, maybe turning out a few books. And it is, and he—and he had so many friends. So it, it is really, really sad to me. It's very sad, anyway.
1: I think that definitely comes across, yeah. And um, if we can show, um, actually, one one photograph, we of Mybridge, which you include in your book as well, which is which is particularly sad. And um, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts about about this and some of other some other of MyBridge's photographs but where somebody's running away. Tell us um, what this means to you.
0: Well Mybridge did these motion studies after he'd killed Harry and as as was explained in great detail in court and and in, in the inquest and so on when he shot Harry, he shot him front on through the heart. Um, Harry spun round and ran away, ran away for his life with Mybridge chasing after him, apparently hoping to get a second shot. But in fact, Harry collapsed and died. So I, when I first saw, Mybridge um, takes lots of, in fact, motion studies of uh, men running away. This isn't the only example anyway. I just couldn't help thinking that it was borderline creepy to imagine him examining in in this intense detail the musculature of someone running as fast as possible away from you know being shot by the camera as one one can make these kind of puns with that word but the fact that he examined in such detail this this uh, motion just seems very 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 odd to me really. And he's got one other motion study, which is in fact of a woman, but it's called something like caught in surprise and turning away. Um, and that that also mimics the the death, the, the killing of Harry Larkins.
1: It's very, yeah, it's a very creepy thing when you look at it with, with, with that changed view, having read the book, it's very much, certainly changed my opinion um, of Mybridge and just kind of his life and the kind of person he was. Okay, then I think what we need to do now is talk a little bit more about your research process, um, because obviously I think people will be very interested in in uh, the fact that this is a family history, this this kind of began as a family history and you're exploring a particular person in your part, in your family's past. So could you tell us a bit about your process, which which records you use? I know it's a very broad question, but also Clearly, there are quite a few gaps in the story. It's quite difficult to piece together. And so it's quite interesting how you use other writers and and others in similar situations to kind of fill in the gaps. So can you tell us a little bit more about that process?
0: Yes. Well, um, one of the fantastic things was that a cousin of my father's, to whom I appealed, turned out to have the letter that we were talking about at the beginning from India, from Harry's mother. And he said I could have it. In fact, it's now given it to the British Library with a whole lot more of her correspondence but so this cousin said I'll, you know basically all or nothing I'll send you all the archive I have and, and a, a white van turned up with <laughs> 11 crates in it and it took me uh, I think four months to read every every document in those crates out of which I think I found five references to Harry, but they were absolutely critical. Re- they really sort of, they were key things that, that people had kept. There's very definitely a sense that, however, that the family archive had been pruned and that, that almost everything had been thrown away and that the family was ashamed in the end, which is very sad. So I started with that. Then, then there's newspapers and also wills, which I got from you from the National <laughs> Archive. Those were fantastically helpful, and I should say that because of because of Harry being in France, Gallica, which is this great French archive, that was hugely useful. Not least because actually, if you summon up their material, it automatically translates it for you. (laughs) If you're not sure, that's a good start. It's not you know those translations are a bit strange, but um, that's a good start. I also I have to say used. I know one's supposed to say a well known online auction site, but I was really interested by the courtesans and actresses that Harry got involved with. And they would sell these cards, carte de visites, with their photographs on. And they weren't necessarily the most major actresses. Some of them are not particularly well known now, but by putting their names in and waiting and hoping, I was able to get photographs of them and I could buy them for, you know, two or three pounds. So that that was fantastically exciting for me. And I do have one tip which I would pass on to anybody doing family history in the 19th century, which I, I wrote about this at the end of my book, that was hugely helpful to me. I, I was lucky that Mybridge changed his name. He was born Muggeridge, but he created this weird, unique surname. So you know, someone called John Smith, it's, that's a killer, how are you going to dig out the right John Smith? Mybridge, no problem, you know, that's a unique name, and even Larkins with a Y is very rare. However, there are all these fantastic online digitized newspaper archives, but if you're looking for a name in one of those, bear in mind that 19th century newsprint gets smudged So I did lots and lots of checks where I put the wrong letter in. So if you take Mybridge, it's got an I in the middle. If you put an L instead of the I, sometimes the digital reader of a newspaper will misread a smudged I as an L. Or with Larkins, the S on the end is sometimes misread as an E. So actually, there were outstanding questions in books about Mybridge. Where he'd been, when, and this sort of thing, and by chasing up the wrong name for him, I was able to piece together some of those gaps. So that was that was I. I recommend this misspelling trick <laughs> to people. <be laughs> sure. But as for filling in the gaps, I was also incredibly lucky that Harry, he was at school with one of Dickens's sons. You know, he went to Brussels, as I mentioned, where Charlotte Bronte, you know, wrote Villette and the Professor about schools in Bronte. Then. The affairs that he had in Paris, those courtesans, the actual same women that he was hanging out with, as is in the newspaper record, Emile Zola then used them as his models when he wrote Nana, his great novel about a courtesan. And in America, you know, Harry's, some of his best friends were friends of Mark Twain. So I had, I had at one remove, there are more writers I'm not even mentioning. I had at one remove these different writers who captured the scenery and and the sort of own bits of his life in their writing that I could turn to, to fill in the picture in a a sort of beautifully digested, you know, these works of geniuses who've digested those bits. So I I could turn to them with confidence.
1: Okay, brilliant. So I think, thank you very much for answering my questions. I think we're now (laughs) gonna um, turn to uh, everybody watching and uh, take some questions somebody has asked to start us off quite an interesting question is uh, did Harry's sisters lead conventional lives?
0: Yeah the sister from whom I'm descended his sister Alice married a vicar and it did become a fairly conventional life although she she rather she felt rather constrained by it um, and she she writes quite amusingly about that she also writes that she had a wonderful letter where she describes seeing Queen Victoria and says what an ugly dumpy little red-faced woman, (laughs) very uh, very rude. Connie married very late to a man in, you know, when she was 34, late by Victorian standards, married a man in his seventies, went out to Demerara. He had a historically a slaving fortune in his family, but he died within two years. So she came back to England and lived on a rather small well by, by by the standards of her family money that he left her and then the sister who married the guy called Cutler who un, you know unlocked the whole thing for me I think she had a happy marriage he was a lawyer and a musician and they, they seem to have done well.
1: Okay great uh, there's a question here about um, well actually I suppose we can talk a little bit about um your family your closer family so so did you just this is a question from somebody saying did you discuss this story with your family before publishing
0: well i did because i asked them all uh, if they could help me and if anyone had any more archive and in fact i i discovered a second cousin had um a a few critical pieces including he had a, a painting of emma larkins harry's mother that i didn't know about so Yes, and, and it's sufficiently remote that I don't think anyone felt sort of ownership or worried that I was trampling on their toes by writing about it. So, no, I, I had a, a very kind and lovely family response to the whole thing, yes.
1: That does just sound like that seems to be a key thing, is to have family who've held on to things it does, it
0: does make you think that you should never throw away any letters because you don't know what your great-great-great-niece is going to make of it in, you know, 150 exactly. years' time. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. And we have another question asking that uh, you spoke of an age difference of 10 years for Harry in the reports of his death. So they got his age wrong. Right. Um, Ten years wrong. Did you discover why this was?
0: Well, when he arrived in San Francisco, he was I mean, if you think he'd gone to India as a cadet at 16. And he was plunged into an extraordinary life there. So I suppose he got going on his adulthood early. So when he reached San Francisco, he was in his late 20s, but he was so confident and maybe a bit weatherbeaten. I don't know. He was just taken to be about 40. And then there's this narrative of him having seduced Mybridge's wife and being a sort of middle-aged roué, so people kind of ran with that, and they've run with it ever since. But but it wasn't true. He was only seven. He was only seven years older than Flora, whereas Mybridge was twenty years older than her. So, um, he Harry was much closer to her than Mybridge was, in fact.
1: And uh, yeah, we have another question about Harry's burial, which I know is mentioned in the book. So yeah, somebody's asking where where is he buried. So uh,
0: so he he had an enormous funeral one report said 500 people went and it was certainly a sort of celebrity funeral and because because he'd been a theater critic he was absolutely in with all the actors and actresses so a lot of famous people rolled up and because all his friends were journalists they all wrote about it and so on in advance and when it happened so it was a big sort of social to do but one of his best friends who was an actor was a leading mason in San Francisco and there was uh, a a masonic graveyard which was uh, very sort of smart and reputable so he was taken there and put in a vault initially while they tried to track down his family in England which they, they couldn't because of the name change but in the end his family reading reports of the death of Harry Larkins with a Y realized that it was their Harry Larkins and wrote to the British consul and asked so eventually that connection was made but I think there's no evidence that he was repatriated to England or buried anywhere here so I think when they figured it out the assumption must be that he was buried in the masonic graveyard but a sort of unpleasant coda to that is that the land was eventually sold for development and it was all churned up and the records were lost Mm. so one can't be absolutely sure but that that's an overwhelming likelihood.
1: And then I suppose a related question about the about what happened afterwards, which which is very sad from from every level, I suppose. But what became of Flora?
0: Well, you you cautioned me not to give away <laughs> the <laughs> ending. Shall shall I give it? But maybe people who don't want to know can put their fingers in their ears. But
1: yeah, okay, yeah. So if, <laughs> we're going to give well, away some of the ending. She so. she let's <laughs> shall we say she had a
0: very very tragic end that came upon her really quickly but maybe you want to look at the book to find out the ins and outs of it but it's not it's it's really sad it's really sad what happened to her as well yeah
1: yeah there's there's plenty at the end of the book which I just I just think um, really ends the story so sadly and so beautifully in a way and it's just I I just recommend people read the book because it really (laughs) tells it very well okay we have another question about about your process for research and writing so could you Could you tell us uh, about your process of putting all your research into writing? So how did you go about structuring it all?
0: Well, actually, um, uh, interestingly enough, from my point of view, the the photograph that we looked at of the galloping horse, Mybridge isn't only famous for doing those pictures, but also because he took images like that and painted them, I'm doing this on the screen, round the rim of a circular glass disc, and then he would shine a light through it and spin the disc to create something he called a zoopraxiscope, which beamed uh, something, a sort of forerunner of cinema. It looked like a motion picture on the wall, and this became a great sort of uh, thing of his, and he would go on tours demonstrating this. So he said, bringing my photographs back to life. And... I took that as a kind of metaphor for what I was doing because I had these, as one can say, snapshots of Harry's life in all these incredibly different um, settings, you know, the Franco-Prussian War, India, America, so on. I, I say in my, my introduction that the reader somehow has to take these different snapshots of his life and make a thread through it as though it was being spun, as though it were being spun, excuse me because it isn't it isn't a neatly tied together narrative but I so my process in a more humble way of putting that is I told it chronologically to the best of my ability putting in more or less everything I knew but uh, because there, there was so much missing I was at least able to say everything I knew which means the reader too can form a judgment based on all the available evidence I wasn't really particularly editing it as I went along
1: great yeah that's really really interesting okay we have a a, a very interesting question here I think uh, kind of difficult one really but um, in what ways do you think the book might have been different if you were descended from the murderer instead of the victim
0: yeah that that's a really great (laughs) question I have to say the first book I ever wrote this is just bizarre but it was also a family history sort of book and it was also about a murder case. And it was actually about Harry Larkins's nephew, my great-great-grandmother, grandfather, sorry, who was caught up in an extraordinary murder case in Canada in 1890. And when I wrote that book, one of the proposals was that I would do one of those things where you talk about my, my journey to unpack this and discover it and put myself in as a character. But I wanted to tell it straight, as it were. And so I waited until the end. So I I told the whole story. And then at the end, I said, you know, I inherited this story. And I'm grateful to family members who then handed over different bits of archive and so on. Um, And I got I got a a response to that in someone's Ph.D. that I I was sent that said that completely I'd completely um, sort of ruined the book because I couldn't be dispassionate and and um, Obviously, I was biased, and so nothing in the book was worth a worth a jot, sort of thing. <laughs> I was quite put out by that because uh, I think anybody writing a book about someone probably does get fond of the character. Otherwise, you know, you're spending two or three years on this. But in the case of Harry Larkins and Mybridge, I I'm not sure how different I would have felt about Mybridge if I'd been writing about him. Um, I mean, I've read. Four or five biographies of him so I have a fairly fixed idea now um but but it was so very much the case that people favored him over Harry that I just really wanted to slightly put the record well more than slightly I wanted to put the record straight so the the little voice in my head which says you're you know you're related to him no matter how remotely and therefore you're biased in his favour, there's a little voice in my head that says, well, so what, (laughs) it's about time somebody was prejudiced against Mybridge. it's about time someone was in favour of his victim. I can't tell you how many people, Mybridgey people, have said to me, well, you know, Harry Larkins did sleep with his wife, and then I say to them, well, you know, how are you going to weigh up adultery against murder, and if every adulterer in history got shot at the age of 30, just think for a minute human history would not be the same you'd be eliminating so many people if you thought that was okay you know um, I haven't maybe I haven't quite answered the question what what would I say about mybridge but I say quite a lot in my book about him so that that's the best shot I can give you on that one
1: that's, that's very good good answer um okay we have a couple more I think so we've we've heard about you know the, the his life in terms of his Fraud and the kind of dishonest practices that Harry got involved in, but we also know he was very popular, had lots of friends. So, somebody's asking, did he ever cheat his friends?
0: That that's a difficult question because um, you mentioned um, Arthur Neal, the the chap who got him off on a really bad footing in San Francisco by taking him to the police court. They were friends to start with, and then Arthur Neal got tired of it and claimed that Harry had cheated him, but it's really murky. Um, He's the one who had uh, you know, he was a millionaire and um, his family thought that that Arthur Neal was incredibly irresponsible and so on. So uh, Harry's view was that it was all understood that whatever you had, you shared it with everybody. And he, as I mentioned earlier, he shared everything he had with his friends. And once he got to San Francisco, the bohemian crowd they all sort of laughed and winked if, if some people had reputations for you, you'll never get your money back if you lend it to so and so and that was the sort of Mark Twain slightly swindly atmosphere everybody just accepted it there it seems.
1: It, it is really interesting that whole that you know how easy credit seemed to work and that people lend yes. money fairly freely and uh, and just trusted each other and had to rely on that kind of thing. Uh, another question, which is just about the records you used. So how did you use the wills? So you said you used wills from the National Archives. Um, how did they fit into the, the research and the story?
0: Well, there was some critical information. For example, Harry's aunt, who was in loco parentis after his own parents had been killed, um, whose name bizarrely was Henrietta Coffin, <laughs> her will revealed that she'd been left a huge amount of money, but it was it was in the form of an, an annuity. So it was when she died that that money would cease and she spent it as she went along. So one of Harry's claims in the law court in Paris when he pinched the diamonds was that he was his aunt's heir and that he would one day be rich when she died. But that was just a lie because when she died, she wasn't going to leave anything and then Arthur neal who we were just talking about his father made a will 2 years after harry's run in with arthur and in that will arthur neal's father stipulated that arthur's three older brothers would have complete control over arthur's inheritance to such an extent that even the interest on the money he inherited they didn't have to give him they could they could reinvest it and he ended up um really quite impoverished on the Isle of Man, um, doing good works as a member of the Plymouth Brethren. So his story about how Harry had swindled him, he had lost, I figured out, at least 19 times more the enormous sum that he claimed Harry had swindled from him on his own account, I, I discovered from the will that his father left. So those were two particularly helpful ones. Other wills sort of sketched in the pitch at which people must have been living their lives based on what they left when they die.
1: Great. Um, and then I think this is probably the final question, um, which you sort of t- touched on slightly, which is, so when you, when you started this research, did you know from the beginning that it was gonna be a book? Um, or was it beginning as curiosity in your family history? And, and if it was the latter, at what point did you know this is, this is gonna be a book? <laughs>
0: Well, in my writing life, I've written both non-fiction, as I mentioned, the first book I wrote was rather similar to this one, um, but also fiction. And the, the, the two books before this one had been actually books about the English language. So I was really keen at this point to write another novel, actually. And I didn't want to do a heavily researched book where, you know, you had to be able to stand by every sentence and, and every little detail had to be, you know, grindingly Verified. Uh, I thought I'll have the freedom of writing another novel, but when when this story sort of fell into my lap, I, I just couldn't resist it. Um, so uh, you know, I, I solicited a book contract. I, w- I, I wouldn't have worked on it like this without a book contract, I must say, because it it took me three years. So I couldn't have afforded really to, or or at least if I'd been doing something else to earn my living, I would have had to um, take a lot longer to do it. So. So the answer is, I, I, I pitched it um, once. I, I, I probably did six months of research before I pitched it, but I, I knew I had enough material at that point that whatever else I found or didn't find, it was going to be a, a cracking story. And, and once I got the thumbs up,
1: <laughs> I was away. Was it. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. Um, so I think that's all we've got time for in terms of questions this evening. Uh, So thank you to everyone.
0: Thank you so much, thank you for joining in and thank you for asking all these interesting questions which I've enjoyed answering.
1: Yeah, I'd like to, it is a cracking read. So I'd like to remind everyone that uh, (laughs) Rebecca's book is available, I highly recommend it. There's so much more that we haven't touched on that is is just brilliant inside it. So um, yeah, so finally I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the event. And of course a huge thank you to Rebecca Gowers for joining us tonight and answering all our questions. Thank you.
0: This talk is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence. Visit our website to discover more talks and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for news and updates from the National Archives.